Romans 6 verse 15 says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Father, we humbly ask for just the help of your Holy Spirit to be able to be alert and attentive to what your spirit would say to this part of your church. Give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say. Give us understanding and please, Lord, speak personally and directly to each one of our lives. Bless your word for we ask it believing that's what you desire to do in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, whether we realize it or not, or are willing to admit it or not, everybody in life serves something. Uh, people may not realize that, people may not be willing to admit that, but everybody in life serves something. Now, that being stated, the key to life, therefore, is very simple. It's finding the right master to serve. And the passage that we're looking at this morning is about how the Christian, the person who is now born again, has accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, embraced him as Lord, how the Christian has been set free from their original master, if you would, their original master, in order to be able to now serve a new master. The Christian has been set free from the power of sin that once reigned over their life as the result of being born of Adam's descendancy and they've now been set free from the reign of sin's power where sin served as their master so that they can now willingly serve a new master king jesus and become as the bible says here a servant of righteousness and we can now be submissive in gratitude and live for the lord you notice there in verse 18 he said having been set free from sin that was our past master you became slaves of righteousness and this is really what our passage is about exhorting us not to return to serving our old master that we once served but instead to now occupy our efforts faithfully serving our new master the new master that we serve out of gratitude because of that deliverance that's been provided now romans 6 as we began it last week as i said begins a new section regarding 
the sanctification of the believer, which is that ongoing process whereby after we're saved, the Lord is working in our life as we grow and mature to help us to become more Christ-like. It's an ongoing process, helping us to understand how to have victory over sin's power and to walk in practical holiness. And in Romans 6, verses 1 to 14, there the Bible clearly explained to us how we've been liberated how we have been delivered from sin's reign and power over our life so that we can serve a new master. He described how as a result of our salvation experience with Jesus, that we have been united or completely joined to Jesus in his life, death and resurrection and all of those experiences. And as a result of being one with Christ now, the result is that the power of sin's control over our life has been broken so that it does not have to rule us any longer. In fact, listen to a few of the truths that we saw last week as just a reemphasis of that. In verse 6, he said, Knowing this, that our old man, that old life, was crucified with Jesus, that the body of sin might be done away with, and that we should, listen, no longer be slaves of sin. He then said in verses 11 and 12, Likewise, in light of what he had taught, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. That was your old life. He says you've died to that old life, but instead, he said, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God now in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. He then concluded in verse 14 saying again very strongly, for sin shall not have dominion, mastery, control over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now having just made that statement, Paul then continues verse 15 saying, what then shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Now, this is very similar to verse 1. Paul, once again, you notice here, is directly addressing a wrong mindset that he understands that as human beings, our mentality is distorted and we're always looking for a loophole. We're always looking for some way to skirt the system, to, to find a, a back way to still get what we want. So Paul addresses this wrong mindset that the availability of God's grace and his forgiveness that's so abundant in some ways is going to encourage sin or lead to loose moral living. Remember he said there back in verse 1, what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, there Paul was anticipating the wrong attitude from his prior statements in chapter 5 that people would begin to say, well, I mean, if you're saying wherever sin abounds, that really gives God a demonstration opportunity to show the abundance of his grace, then shouldn't we help God out and display that God's really gracious by just showing how really sinful we are? Because then we can really show how gracious God is, that no matter what we do, he still pardons and he still forgives. And the idea there was looking for a loophole to continue in a lifestyle of sin, looking for some loophole to selfishly kind of continue practice habitual sin in an ongoing practice since there's plenty of grace to be available to us. And remember when Paul heard that, he refuted that idea as being inconsistent with a genuinely converted person. In other words, Paul was saying, that's ridiculous. If you're genuinely born again, you would never think like that. 
You wouldn't want to abuse God's grace. You would want to live to honor him. And now in verse 15, in a very similar way, having just said, we're not under the law now, but under a reign of grace, he says, therefore, shall we sin just because we're not under the law, but under grace? In other words, here the idea Paul's envisioning is a person saying, well, wait a minute. If once we cease from the practice of sin and we stop all the patterns of sin, then shouldn't we at least be allowed maybe a, a periodic sin once in a while? I mean, since we're under this reign of grace and we're not under the threat of the law now where if we break the law, God's going to come down with a, with a hammer of judgment. Well, since we're under this reign of grace and since Jesus is willing to forgive because he paid for all of our sins on the cross, well, doesn't that entitle us once in a while to kind of have a, a periodic indulgence? I mean, if we really desire to sin in a situation or we just need to have a good sin once in a while that, yeah, we don't want to have a practice of sin, but at least a periodic sin once in a while. I mean, we need to indulge a little bit once in a while. That mentality, again, of since we're not under the threat of the law's judgment, therefore we, we kind of have a license to just have an indulgence of sin once in a while, kind of that loose concept in the mind. And what is Paul's answer again? Verse 15, look at it. Paul says again, certainly not. He says, absolutely not. Perish that thought. He says, far be it from us. That reasoning is ridiculous. It dishonors the Lord and the grace he supplies. Hebrews 12 says, as we said last week, it tramples on Jesus and his shed blood as just a common thing. And it insults the spirit of grace. And not only that, here's where Paul's going this morning. He's going to say that idea of, well, how about just periodically we indulge a sin once in a while to just you know, have a momentary enjoyment. He says, you don't realize that jeopardizes your spiritual freedom. And you could potentially, he's going to say, forfeit that freedom you have in Christ and risk being ensnared back into the previous sins maybe that you once struggled with, thinking it's okay to periodically indulge a sin simply because we know there's grace to cover it because we're theologically sound. Now, I don't have to be perfect. If I fail, I just confess it and Jesus forgives it. And if we begin to develop this mindset where we can just periodically indulge sin, Paul says the greater problem is this, not just that it dishonors the Lord. He says the greater problem is it fails to realize you are making yourself vulnerable to then become ensnared to sin and to Satan once again in your life. Second Timothy 2, Paul warned of the believer backsliding, and listen to what he said, becoming ensnared by the devil and being taken captive by him to do his will. Thus Paul here, what he's doing is warning the believer not to flirt with sin. Not to periodically think, well, just every once in a while I need to just participate, he says, because that's a very dangerous mindset. And it's destructive and it can forfeit your freedom in Jesus Christ that he's offered to you. He goes on, verse 16, saying, do you not know, again, that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, that you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Now, Paul's going to give a few principles here. The first one simply is this. He's going to say, whatever or whomever a person yields themselves to, whatever or whomever a person yields themselves to is what they will become enslaved to as their master. 
Whatever a person yields themselves to is what they will become enslaved to as their master. That's the principle here in verse 16. He speaks, notice, of presenting yourself as a servant or a slave to obey a master. He's describing here that continual yielding of oneself to fulfill a request of someone as if they were a master or submitting yourself to the influence of another or the control and direction of another and letting them have authority to decide and direct what you do in your life. And if you continually do this, presenting yourself for service to something the Bible says here, verse 16, the result is what? You then become the slave or the servant of whomever you continually choose to keep obeying and yielding yourself to that influence. This is the reality. Whenever a person repeatedly presents themselves to participate in something or the, some influence and you continuously yield to something and participate in it with regularity, often, is it not true, let's be real, it results in that then taking control over your life. Paul warns the believers in 1 Corinthians 6 by their warning them not to be brought under the power of of anything in their life, whereby it begins to actually control their life. It's a possibility. It's a reality. Oftentimes, if you continually or I continuously keep yielding myself to the same thing, participating in it, you know, giving uh, into its influence, many a times that will then equate to the surrender of your own freedom. And you will forfeit your freedom and surrender, in a sense, uh, that freedom over. And by obeying that influence, you begin to develop a pattern. And you start to develop a habit that begins to have power over you. And in a rather short time, you and I can put ourselves under the authority of that influence in our life, whereby it has complete control and we become enslaved to it. We become completely enslaved to it. It will naturally take greater control over us and will begin to rule over you and I like a master. Now, whether that's sin or whether that's the Spirit of God, the both play out the same way. But what Paul was pointing out here is remember this principle when you yield yourself to something continuously and you continue to present yourself to it in a sense to serve that influence, to serve that thing. He says, when you do that, realize it will eventually master you. You will become enslaved to it as a result of continuously presenting yourself to it. This is the reason why the Bible is saying participating in sin, even periodically, is a very slippery slope. It's a very dangerous thing and a slippery slope to tread upon because before you know it, you're snagged. Before you know it, then you're caught. And all of a sudden, you've forsaken control over that area of your life. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 34, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And listen, does this not describe the story of so many who are enslaved to unhealthy habits in their life? To life-dominating sinful practices. Does this not describe the story of those who have done that? Listen, it wasn't overnight. It was incrementally, gradually, decision after decision, 
participation after participation, gradually, incrementally, that person kept presenting themselves to the same thing. They kept participating in the same thing, making the same decisions, whatever it was. And after repeated times of yielding and yielding and yielding, gradually, more freedom was forsaken and greater power and greater control to where now there are people who are completely enslaved completely enslaved whether it's to some you know addictive habit whether it's some you know influence that controls their life whatever and they are completely enslaved completely enslaved and it was gradual incremental presenting themselves and the warning here to the believer is to avoid that from happening to avoid allowing that to take place in our lives where we ensnare ourselves by continuously yielding to something. He says, verse 17, moving on, but God be thanked, he says, that though you, Christian, you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. So here in verse 17, Paul is rejoicing how the Christian was liberated and delivered from the power of sin in their salvation experience. He says, verse 17, God deserves to be thanked. And he says, the reason why God deserves to be thanked is because though we once were slaves of sin, we were set free from sin. And because we were set free from sin, he says, now we can instead become slaves of righteousness. Now note with me a few things in these verses. First of all, important, why we needed God to send deliverance to us. The text tells us here very clearly right in front of us that it says you were slaves of sin. He's going to repeat again as we saw in our reading down in verse 20. He says there, for when you were slaves of sin. Please do not miss this biblical truth. The statement describes our spiritual condition prior to accepting Jesus Christ, prior to our conversion. The Bible teaches clearly that before a person is saved, they're not just struggling with sin or they're not just struggling with being sinful. The Bible says a person is a slave of sin. They are enslaved to the power of sin from Adam's descendancy ruling over their life until the day that they're saved. Ephesians 2 and 3 describes it this way. It says regarding a prior condition to salvation, you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Again, the Bible teaches that our inward desires and cravings, that's what drove us. We were just fulfilling the lusts and desires of our sinful flesh. We had no capability, hear me, to do anything different. A person truly can't. Until Jesus liberates you, you have no other ability, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, other than when the impulse of sin is there, is to have to act upon it. It's, it's like living according to the, the lower nature. You are driven by desires and cravings, and that's what motivates you to make your choices and to do the things that you do in your life. And not only that, the outward pressures of the world and the devil's influence in the world, those things direct us, and we live according to the sin nature. The Bible teaches an unsaved person is not free. It's the biggest lie that's out there. Oh, man, I want your stupid Christian stuff. I'm free, man. 
I don't want all your stupid Christianity and rules and regulations. And I just, no, I'm free, man. That's not free. You're enslaved. I'm free because I have the choice to live differently. I can say, no, I don't have to drink anymore. I don't have to do drugs anymore. I don't have to live sexually promiscuous. I don't have to speak in ways that are inappropriate. I don't have to lose my temper. I do, but I don't have to. I have freedom. I've been liberated. The believer has been given a choice because we've been set free. This is what the Bible's telling us here. We were slaves of sin. That genuinely was our condition. Paul's saying here, verse 17, Yet, thanks be to God, God be thanked, He sent Jesus to destroy the power of sin, to deliver us, to liberate us, to offer us freedom from sin's control. In John 8, Jesus said it this way. He said, therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And do you see how it happened here? That deliverance and freedom came. He says in the end of verse 17, the way that it happened is he says, the way that we were set free is we obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine that was delivered to us. Here's what this is saying, that we heard the truth. We heard the sound doctrinal truth of the deliverance and freedom that is offered in Jesus Christ. And when we heard that glorious doctrine that was delivered to us, we understood it. But then look what he says in the text there. But he says, but then you obeyed from the heart that doctrine that was delivered to you. In other words, he's saying we heard the truth about our sinful condition and our enslavement to the power of sin. We heard the truth about Jesus' accomplishment on the cross and his resurrection and what that provided, how he broke the power of sin. We heard about the opportunity that we could be set free by Jesus Christ if we submitted our life to him and believed upon him. And we heard that Jesus was offering to us, but then there came a moment a crisis moment in our life when we chose to believe that truth wholeheartedly and to respond to it for ourselves. Notice what he's saying there. Please don't miss the language. He says, you obeyed from the heart, that form of doctrine. He doesn't say you obeyed from the head. It wasn't just, yeah, I understand that. I understand the theological concept. Jesus died on the cross. I'm a sinner. He says, this goes beyond the head. The longest journey in a human experience is the 18 inches from the head to the heart. And he says, you didn't respond from your head, but he said, there came that moment when you believed and obeyed from the heart in a response of your will. You said, you know what? That's true and I accept it for me. I need that for me. And you obeyed from the heart. And he says, when you obeyed from the heart, that was when deliverance, salvation, liberation took place in our soul, which brings us to an important spiritual principle here as well, and that is this, is that spiritual deliverance is experienced when we believe and respond to the truth. Spiritual deliverance is experienced when we believe and respond to the truth. Again, the words of Jesus in John 8, Jesus said this, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In other words, he's saying when you come to not just hear the truth, but you know it for yourself. And you don't just know it here, but you know it in the depth of your heart that that truth is exactly about you and what is true between you and the God who created you. And you know it in your heart. He says that truth 
when you believe it and respond by obeying it from your heart in response to it, he says that is what then sets a person free. He's going to say in Romans chapter 10 that the word is near you, it's in your mouth, it's in your heart, this word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, he says you'll be saved. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord calling upon crying out to the name of the Lord, he says you will be saved. Again, salvation is not just pardon from the punishment of sin, but it's also that deliverance from the power of sin ruling over our lives. Again, I have underlined in my Bible here this beautiful phrase in verse 18. Look what he says. This is the, the, the truth. If you're a Christian this morning, having been set free from sin. That's worthy of underlining your Bible. Having been set free from sin. You have been set free from sin. The Bible teaches a believer has the power to not choose to sin. That's something that you didn't possess or I didn't possess before we were saved. We now have the freedom to refuse doing what's wrong. We can overcome in times of temptation to sin. That liberation and power from Christ is available to us. We literally, hear me, have a choice now. You have a choice now when temptation to sin comes. To say something you shouldn't say, to participate in something you know you shouldn't participate in, to behave a certain way. When the temptation comes upon us, we have freedom to exercise our will and yield to the resurrection power of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit of God to overcome in victory and to say no to sin and to say yes to doing what is right and righteous. That is a glorious gift to have that freedom. Now, truth be told, are we ever going to walk that out perfectly? Nope. Never. Not in these bodies of flesh. We're going to struggle we're going to fail, we're going to stumble, and it's a struggle. I've been saved since 1992. I still struggle. I still stumble, and that's what makes me thankful for the blood of Jesus and his forgiveness when I fail. But how wonderful to realize that though I'm, you know, I'm not what I should be, I'm not what I once was. And there's a progressive change that's happening, and how wonderful at times to be able to experience victory and to be able to experience saying no to temptation and living in victory as the Lord grants that power in our lives. The reality is this. We now have opportunity to live victoriously. There's an opportunity when the struggle of sin takes place. There, If you believe upon the truth of God's word and respond to it, there's opportunity to live in victory. To overcome any sin. Any temptation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.57, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, this morning, if you're a Christian, please hear me. You do not have to accept spiritual defeat. Maybe you've been struggling with some area of sin in your life and you've just taken a defeatist mentality. Well, I guess this is the way it will always be. This is just my struggle. I'm just always going to be a weak Christian and I guess this life-dominating habit will just be part of my Christian experience. No. That's not true, biblically. You may feel condemned, you may feel hopeless, but here the good news of God is you have been freed from sin. That is the truth that God wants us to believe and to realize, listen, yes, we're going to struggle and fail. Paul's going to talk about that in chapter 7. But he's saying, but there is power for victory. 
There is power to live victoriously. The Bible promises we can be set free and we don't have to live defeated under the control and bondage of sin. God's intention is to set us free. Notice, he says here, that we may instead serve him as a new master. That's what he says in verse 18. We've been set free from sin so that we could now become slaves of righteousness. That's our new calling and position as a Christian. We're to redirect our servitude, our attention and devotion that we used to give to, to sin to now serve the Lord instead. And for some of us, look, that would make us really great servants of God because we were good servants of sin. Some of us did a really good job. You know, it's been said before, I want to be just as good of a saint as I was a sinner. Some of us, we're really good at serving sin. So God says, great, now I've liberated you. Let's use that same passion, that same devotion, that same dedication to now serve God, to be a slave of righteousness and redirect our service to serve the Lord and devote ourselves to serving a new master. Paul goes on, verse 19, saying, I know that I'm speaking, he says, in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. In other words, Paul's saying, I know these terms, slaves, servants, they may not accurately 100% portray the, you know, the illustration of the truths that he's trying to convey. For example, yes, we're enslaved to sin, but we're not enslaved as a, a slave to God in the sense that he forces us to serve him against our will. He's just trying to give comparisons and analogies here. So I'm trying to connect with language you can relate to. Verse 19, he says, for just as, and take notice there, just as you once presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Here's another principle that we find in our verses this morning, and that is this, is that spiritual momentum happens when we make repeated decisions and routine pursuits. Spiritual momentum happens as we make repeated decisions and routine pursuits. Let me illustrate. When you first start doing something, okay, many of you committed, like me, tremendous gluttony on Thanksgiving. And so you're like, gosh, I got to start exercising again. I got to diet. I and, and when you first start something, whether it's the diet, whether it's the exercise program, whether it's trying to learn an instrument, whether it's some new thing you want to do, when we first start doing something, it seems like it's a little awkward at first. It's a little challenging. It's not quite as comfortable as we like it to be. And, but what you got to keep doing it. You got to keep doing it. You got to keep deciding to keep pursuing it. And as you keep doing something even new, what happens? It gradually becomes easier. And then it becomes more and more comfortable. Why? Because you begin to pick up momentum. You begin to pick up momentum and then it becomes easier to make the same decisions. It becomes easier to participate in the same thing. Those repeated decisions and routine pursuits of the same activities, the result is you pick up momentum. And you begin to get that momentum to help move things along. Well, the Bible's saying that same thing is true spiritually. That's also true morally. That's what Paul's talking about here in these verses. In verse 19, he says, We used to present our bodies as slaves of uncleanness, and we used to pursue lawless deeds. And he said, What did that lawless deed what did that contribute to? He says, To more lawlessness. He's talking about momentum here. He's saying we used to pursue unclean behaviors and we used to participate in lawless behavior and that just led, if we're honest, to more lawless behavior, to more unclean pursuits. It's this idea of momentum here. We picked up momentum in doing what's wrong. 
It got easier to do what's wrong. Maybe you can relate to this. You know, the, the first time you drank alcohol when you knew you maybe weren't supposed to drink alcohol at a party and it, maybe you felt a little awkward. Like, I don't really know if I should be doing this. And, 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 but, but you did it. And then the next weekend, the opportunity was there again. You were at another party. Well, I did it last week. So it, was, it was a little bit easier. And then each time you begin to do something, it becomes easier. Or maybe the first time you were sexually immoral and, and afterwards you kind of felt embarrassed and unclean and dirty and, and the whole guilt in your conscience, oh, I knew that was wrong, and, 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 and you struggle with that. But amazing how if you do it again, then it gets a little easier next time. And all of a sudden, momentum begins to pick up and lawlessness leads to more lawlessness and it becomes easier to do what's wrong and a person begins to do it then more often whether it's using foul language. Maybe the first time you used foul language, oh, I shouldn't have spoke like that, but, but everybody kind of chuckled when I did, so maybe I look a little cooler. And, and then the next time, and, and momentum begins to build. And then what begins to happen is not only is the momentum beginning to build, but then it happens more often, and it leads to further and further steps where it begins to ultimately take over, and then it becomes out of control, like an avalanche. Like an avalanche just coming down the hill and nothing can stop it at that point. And maybe this morning, some of us, if we're honest, we can relate to that in our personal experience. Where our old lawless sinful behavior, it literally became like an avalanche and it just got out of control. It just totally became out of control. It just led to more and more and more and more. Some of us here this morning know people who we look at and we realize, oh my gosh, that's what happened. It's just like an avalanche in their life now. It's just completely gone out of control. Well, the Bible's saying the same thing, this momentum, can also happen with godly pursuits. It can also happen with good pursuits. Notice the change in direction, verse 19. He says there, for just as you used to get momentum doing what's wrong and it built momentum, just as you used to do that, he says, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. See, the same experiences of forward momentum can also happen doing what's righteous that results in living a life of holiness. For example, maybe it's reading the Bible. You know, I talk to people at times and they say, well, I just, you know, I struggle. I tried reading the Bible and it just, well, it wasn't quite grasping everything and, and it was kind of awkward and uncomfortable. And so I just, I just, just, I just gave up on it. Well, listen, the first time I read the Bible was a little challenging too. It's a big book. And I was a brand new Christian. And, and, and so it took time. But, but I tell you this, it's amazing how if you continue to read the Word of God and you become more familiar with the Word of God, then all of a sudden, it's amazing how oh, this connects to this. And, and all of a sudden, now it becomes... And what happens? You begin to build up momentum. And you begin to build forward momentum where then it becomes easier and more comfortable and more desirous to read the Word. Same thing with prayer. Oh, prayer, just, I struggle praying. I, just, I, you know, I feel awkward. I don't know what to say. And listen... First of all, prayer is just talking to God. But maybe the first time you talked to somebody, you were a little nervous and awkward about talking to them. But the more you got to know them and the more you talked to them, what happened? You got more comfortable talking to them. Oh, I don't pray in groups because I just I don't know what to say. Well, first of all, listen, you shouldn't be caring about what you say anyway. If you're praying, caring about what I think about what you're praying, then you're not praying. You're trying to impress me. We're supposed to be talking to God. But it's amazing how whether it's reading the Bible or praying or having a personal devotion time or worshiping the Lord, you can build up momentum too. Listen, I remember first time as a Christian thinking, I kind of want to do that hand raise thing. 
I said, I thought I saw a few. And, and it kind of looks like maybe someone's been, you know, gosh, man, I was going to kind of do the, you know, and, and it kind of feels a little weird. You know, I, mean, I, never, I never raised my hands for like, it, it, but it's amazing how all of a sudden when you just begin to, to, to do what you do in a righteous, godly way as well, it becomes more natural. Now there are times in worship services where I, 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 I discipline myself to hold my hands down because I don't want to stumble other people who are thinking, why is that guy raising his hands? That's kind of weird. I never saw somebody do that before. What's he doing? You know, tuning in something? Or was he waiting for something to fall from the ceiling? Or, and, and it's amazing how whether it's reading the word or again witnessing, maybe it's awkward at first or the first time you choose to obey God's word. That's challenging sometimes. You're in that struggle. and like, man, the word of God says this, but my feelings are telling me, and I so strongly want to do that. And man, if I obey that, wow, I mean, that's, if I obey that, what will people think of me? That could change my whole lifestyle. And, and there's the fear of if I actually obey what the Bible says there, what will happen? And there's that awkward, uncomfortable thing that you're going to stand on what the Bible says and see how it plays out in your life. But here's the thing. But as you begin to do it, you begin to build momentum. And then gradually it becomes easier and more comfortable. But here's the thing. You've got to be willing to invest. You got to be willing to stay at it and to keep at it and get momentum going. Galatians 6 9 says, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't lose heart, if we don't give up. Hey, don't let momentum swing you into a spiral of sin and enslavement. Let good, godly, righteous momentum lead you in the other way, where you get momentum to serve the Lord and you really get forward motion leading you on in your relationship with Christ. Paul goes on, verse 20 now, to say, For when you were slaves of sin, again, he comes back to that same concept, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit then... In, did you then have in those things which you're now ashamed of? For the end of those things, he says, is death. But now, verse 22, having been freed from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Here the principle Paul is pointing out is whatever we invest ourselves into and yield ourselves to is also going to bring corresponding fruit. When you invest into something by making decisions or pursuits, it's like planting seeds. And he says, whatever you invest yourself in is going to yield corresponding fruit and it's going to have an end result. That's the principle he's getting here. You notice the repeated terms in verse uh, 21 and 22 of fruit and the end of those things. This is the idea being conveyed, the contrasting results of serving sin or serving God. He said there in verse 20, repeating what he's already said, for when you were, there it is again, slaves of sin. And he says, when that was the case, you were free in regards to righteousness. What Paul's speaking of here is how in our prior life before we came to Jesus, we were free in regards to righteousness because we had no interest really in doing what was right. Before we were following Jesus Christ, there was no compelling interest in me or real concern about doing what was right. My idea of doing what was right was, listen, if, if, if what people say is right works, then I'll do it. But if not, then whatever's right in my eyes is what's best in this given situation. Because I made my own standards. And I measured things and measured everyone else, not according to the righteousness of God or his word. I measured everything according to, you know what, hey, whatever's right for me. That's what's right. Whatever works, that's what's right. 
And he says, so when we weren't saved, we weren't living in accountability to God or what was right in the way that we lived our lives. But that way of thinking, he says, and lifestyle, it yielded something. He says it yielded fruit with it. And it had an end result. Paul says, verse 21, what fruit did you then have in those things of which you're now ashamed of? He calls to mind how living a life of serving sin brought about certain things. Paul's saying that life, did it not? It had fruit attached to it. It yielded fruit and, and it, doing those things brought an end result. The fruit was things like what? I know for myself, bad consequences, painful experiences, regret, suffering, hurt of myself, hurting others. And then it resulted further in the fruit of guilt and shame. He says, what fruit did you then have in those things of which you're now ashamed of? And is that not the truth? Those things that we once did in hindsight, now we look back, do we not? And we look back in hindsight and say, man, I am so ashamed that I live like that. I'm so ashamed that I did those things. Our time of participation and investing in those things that we once did yielded not only unpleasant fruit in the moment and maybe some still that we're reaping, but even worse, it yielded guilt and regret and things that left us completely ashamed of how we once lived. And if that weren't enough, worse, he said, in the end of those things is death. In other words, the ultimate fruit of that kind of a pursuit of serving sin, it destroyed, it put to death all the good things God intended for our lives. It brought a, a deadly experience, a pathway leading to death and the ultimate destination of eternal death, of damnation and separation from God and hell. That was the fruit and the end result of that. And that description, listen, truly describes the person right now who's still not saved. They may be saying, oh, no, my, my life's fun. I can do whatever I want. And, and yeah, and maybe it is momentarily fun. The momentary pleasures of sin the Bible describes. But I promise you, those people who are enjoying momentary pleasures of sin without respecting the standards of what is right in their life, they are also dealing with the unpleasant fruit that always goes along with sin of the bad consequences of the unstable life, of the pain and the suffering and the hurt and the regrets and the guilt and the deadly effect even worse that it is plunging them towards a path of eternal damnation and separation from God. The Bible tells us in Galatians 6, 7, and 8, do not be deceived, God is not mocked for whatever a man sows that he will also reap for he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. Now, as a Christian, again, in the same way, Paul says, verse 22, but now, for those of us who've been set free, having been set free from sin and becoming slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. So he calls upon the Christian who's been liberated spiritually to consider what? The pleasantness of the fruit of living a life to serve God. He says there's fruit in that as well. He reminds us that we've now become slaves to God. And again, as I said, not slave in the sense of where God forces us to serve. And that's why Paul said, I'm speaking in human terms here, I realize. But the idea is that is at a response of what God's done for us in Jesus, we willingly forsake our lives and freedom and say, Lord, I want to abandon myself to serve you. 
I, I want to live like an indebted slave to you, God, because I'm so thankful and gratitude for what you've done for me in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, You were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and spirit, which are God's. And the wonderful thing is that life of serving God has fruit attached to it as well. It has an outcome and things are produced which are wonderful. Things which are enjoyable and pleasant and have a blessed end. He says, having become slaves of God, you now have your fruit to holiness. And the fruit to holiness describes all the wonderful experiences in a life that serves God and obeys his word. I mean, think of the wonderful fruit. Galatians 5 describes how the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and self-control. Think of how as the result of serving God, it produces good byproducts, pleasant experiences, that instead of guilt, you have peace of mind within when you lay down in bed at night. Instead of having a constant worry about, oh my goodness, I wonder what's going to happen because I know what I did there wasn't right, but I wonder how it's all going to... That goes away. It's not there anymore. The wonderful experience of having pleasant relationships and healthy relationships where there's love and peace and kindness and forgiveness and communication instead of just you know, complete chaos in relationships. There's stability in our lives, a sense of fulfillment, of knowing we're doing what's right, and all the blessings that come along with it. Hey, as a Christian, can I encourage you this morning, consider some of the great fruit that you're now experiencing as a result of no longer serving sin and now serving God instead. The incredible fruit that's come out of that. And if that weren't enough, what does Paul say? In the end, you get everlasting life. The best is yet still to come. Paul concludes verse 23 saying, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul sort of makes a summary statement here. And in essence, he's saying this, Sin pays its servants what they deserve, and yet God freely rewards his servants with a free gift. Sin pays its servants what they deserve. He says the wages of sin is death. Notice, a life of sin is not an ineffective thing. A life of sin always pays in time. That word wages there speaks of what a soldier received for their service. What the Bible is saying is that sin always pays back its participants. It may not be immediate, but it always pays its participants, making sure that they get what they deserve that they receive what they've earned. And remember that whenever you're possibly considering indulging sin. It has a compensation package. It's not pleasant. It leads to regret. Ultimately, as people reject Jesus continuously in their life, one day they will receive the full payment of what they've earned and deserved. And he says, and that is death. And he's speaking of eternal death and damnation there in contrast to eternal life. Now, in contrast, he says to sin's miserable payment, God rewards his servants, he says here, with a free gift. The gift of God, in contrast, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not only does God allow us to serve him and experience good fruit from that, but God gives us above and beyond what we ever deserve. He freely gives us a gift of salvation to be forgiven and to go to heaven without ever having to work for it. It's a gift. It's a free gift offered to us. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. God paid for it. Jesus offers it to us. And it's a free gift. 
And the benefit package, no pun intended, is out of this world. It is out of this world, man. And it's a free gift presented to us by God and His love. You know, this morning, we need to, I believe, sincerely consider this reality. What are you serving with your life? Who's the master? We all serve something. We need to resolve and make a commitment to serve the Lord. I leave you with the words of Joshua in chapter 24. He said, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord... Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Notice, he says, choose. You will serve someone. Choose for yourself whom you will serve, Joshua said. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord.